Chapter 3, The Long Goodbye. Episode 12, Adapt and Overcome. We came home from Afghanistan about five months after the Army announced its decision to divest the Kiowa. We knew a few things for certain. Human Resources Command held a promotion board for warrant officers earlier that summer, and shortly after, a transition board for Kiowa warrant officers. We knew our families were ready to see us. We knew we were ready to see our families. We knew we wouldn't be flying much when we got home, and we knew our airframe was laying on the proverbial chopping block. But there was a quiet stream of hope running through all of us. It was kind of a surprise that they really did. I mean, I, I will tell you that during that time period, I, I mean, when I say I was hoping and I was praying, is that all the ground commanders that I had supported and all the Kiowa guys across the community had supported and saved their ass were going to come and save us. And it didn't happen. Despite numerous articles from various sources that came out about the negative impact divesting the Kiowa would have on the force, the plan continued. But none of us truly understood why. The answer was always a curt money. But any time we sat down and thought about the numbers, the undeniable fact was that the Kiowa was the cheapest airframe in the fleet to fly and maintain. But many years later, Gary went to Fort Rucker and heard General Lundy speak on the matter. It wasn't until then that he truly understood the why behind the Army's Aviation Restructuring Initiative. Um, is with the upgrades to the Apache, the 60, and the Chinook, the Army couldn't afford to sustain. They, they had to find a place to, make mo- to, to fund some money. I mean, we were really outdated, like an airframe. The platform itself, you know, a scout helicopter, it's, and, and Lundy would go on to the Pentagon and say, look, guys, I, I, yeah, I killed the Kiowa. But it was to save the Mike model, the Fox model, and the Echo model, you know what I mean, of the Apache, because we couldn't afford to fund it all. Obama's talking about cutting the budget, and he is the commander-in-chief. I mean, ask yourself, what other department, you know, prior to Obama's announcement that he was going to cut the budget to stuff, actually did. Did social services cut their budget? I mean, I don't know. I just know that military planners across the board started looking at how we could cut the budget because they knew it was coming. And on the aviation side, they're like, well, the Kiowa needs replaced anyway. You know what I mean? We'll force the issue. I'll upgrade everything else. And then maybe at some later date... Somebody will figure out that we really need it, and they'll fund the money for it. That's the thing I think I missed in the moment. That the Kiowa divestiture was not a singular decision. Shutting down our brigade was not a singular decision. Money was the curt, short answer, but it wasn't just about dollars per flight hour. It was much, much bigger than that. The Kiowa divestiture was just one part of a massive Army aviation restructuring initiative. In March of 2016, Lieutenant General Michael Williamson and now Lieutenant General Michael Lundy reported before the Subcommittee on Tactical Air and Land Forces, part of the House Armed Services Committee. In their brief to the Subcommittee, they described ARI in the following manner. 
In response to declining budgets and an effort to maintain the most capable and available aviation force, the Army presented the Aviation Restructuring Initiative as part of its budget plan in FY15. By reinvesting the savings and cost avoidance garnered by ARI, Army Aviation was able to continue to field its most modernized aircraft while developing and fielding the right disruptive technologies to improve mobility, lethality, survivability, and mission command. But the overarching budgetary issues that drove senior leaders to make these drastic decisions about equipment seemingly didn't include much consideration for the people it would affect. I'm sure that they knew individuals would suffer losses as a result of the decision, but I don't know they appreciated just how unstable the process felt at my level. Of course, I had to know from Colonel Blackman's position how he thought the whole divestiture plan went. Well, of course, we jacked it up. I mean, we lost we lost some phenomenal pilots that were were you know a lot of them bailed because they they were just unsure when the music stopped whether they're going to have a, a chair to sit in, and so um, yeah, that you know two administrations own that and. They know who they are at Rucker, and uh, we, we never could nail down the plan and make people feel comfortable that that if they were quality uh, pilots and, and officers, they were gonna they were gonna get you know they were gonna get into another airplane and and be used well and you know and then you got guys that bailed early and so we didn't message it well we we lost some guys and we retained some pilots and other airframes that that were less quality i'm sure that'll hurt some nice feelings but less quality than some of these these Kiowa guys that we could have we could have moved into Chinooks and and um Blackhawks or or Apaches and you know i mean we we got some things right but overall um you know, we can tell ourselves whatever we want. We lost some good people and some good people decided to punch early because of the unknown. And that comes, that's about strategic leadership and, and messaging and communicating, uh, you know, to folks that we're going to take care of you and it's going to be all right. Well, I think, you know, so they did some boards um, to try and, you know, look at these guys and figure it all out. I think the biggest failure was communicating it, helping people to understand the plan. Once it was unveiled, here's the plan. This is the timeline. This is how we're going to move forward. And it is complex. Uh, you only have so many seats in the schoolhouse and you've got initial entry guys coming in and you've got transitions. and You only have so much volume that can go through the pipeline. But, um, you know, how you communicate how that's going to work is challenging. I think the biggest thing was the uncertainty among the warrant officer crew uh, pilots in particular hurt us. Communication. I think he hit the nail on the head. We didn't know what the plan was or even if there was one. And the decisions being made, we couldn't put them in context of the overall goal because we didn't know what the goal was. I think at least for my team, if from the outset there was at least a plan, even if that plan changed or evolved, a plan would have been better than no plan. But eventually, 
the results of the transition board came out. When you redeploy back to the States, the Army doesn't just let you gallop off into the distance on leave or anything. You spend the week after you come home going to mandatory classes about how to not blow all the money you made on deployment, how to reach out if you need to talk to someone, and how to reintegrate with your family again. So every morning, for seven days, you report to your unit, get on a bus, and go to these massive auditoriums in order to attend these classes. One morning, on a bus sitting across from the ninja Colonel Halter, who was our task force commander downrange, he looked over at me and said, Marin, the transition list is out. He handed me his government-issued Blackberry, and I scrolled through the list on that tiny little screen, looking for everyone's names. I asked if I could forward the list to myself, and he said yes. I checked and rechecked a dozen times on our way to the auditorium. The list was broken out by people who had a date for transition, so those were the guys who made the primary cut. Then, there were the guys listed as alternates, which meant they didn't have a date for a transition, but they were technically on the list. And then, there were just names not on the list at all. Some of my guys weren't on the list. Some of my best guys weren't on the list. I remember Gary, I came off the bus and Gary was standing there and he came up and he's like, hey man, congratulations on being selected. You know, that is awesome. You know, I'm, I'm very glad you got a transition. Um, so for me, as soon as I got back, you know, obviously you want to go and decompress and get away and you know, as much as you love everybody, you want to get the hell away from them for a little while and that type of thing. And, uh, but I remember thinking like, okay, you know, everything's starting all over again. And that was another thing that, that sucked about that whole situation was the fact that we'd been flying this aircraft for years and it was literally like going out and climbing in your car and driving to the store. That's how comfortable you were in it and how much you knew the aircraft and how to fly it and all its little, you know, depending on what tail number, all its little tendencies and little quirks and that type of stuff. And now I'm starting all over again. Here I am this far into my career at this age, and I'm going to have to learn to fly this totally 100% different aircraft from start, from scratch, day one, have no idea what I'm doing. And that, I was not excited about that at all. Gary got to Brody before I could give him a call. But it's because I knew who I needed to call first. I knew after missing the opportunity to tell my guys the bad news about the divestiture, I didn't want to miss this. I wanted to be the one to tell the guys if they didn't make the cut. I didn't want them to hear it from anyone else but me. So we come home from Afghanistan really kind of unsure. And then the day after we get home from Afghanistan, uh, you were the one that told me um, that I was an alternate. And I didn't know what that meant. Um, And so we had been home from Afghanistan for not even 24 hours at that point. And I've been told, hey, you, you, weren't, you, you weren't given a date for a transition. You were an alternate. But there was, you know, there was no information beyond that. So I, uh, I, I took the step of, I made it an appointment with our, our branch manager at Human Resources Command, and I drove the two and a half hours. The following week, I drove the two and a half hours up to HRC to see him. And <laughs> what the hell does this mean? Um, and he was very gracious and, and took the time to talk with me and, and, and helped me out quite a bit. 
straightening out records and, and other things. But um, he put my mind at ease. That I didn't know it at that point, but I I did have a transition. It just it wasn't on the list that was published. So he then told me, yes, you're going to have a transition. You're going to learn to fly an Apache in somewhere in 2016. Um, and then we talked about what my next assignment might look like leaving Fort Campbell, yada, yada. Um, we kind of, he explained to me kind of what the alternate list was and the fact that there was a, what was not published was a, um, an order merit list where they, you know, they figured out, Hey, this is the first alternate, second alternate, so forth and so on. So anyway, uh, I knew pretty quick after hearing that I was an alternate, I knew pretty quick that that was not the case, and I actually did have a slot. I asked Dave how all this uncertainty affected his life at home, or affected his wife Tessa as they sat around the dinner table, talking about the future. You know, truthfully, we didn't talk about it a whole lot. We had a lot going on in our in our personal life then. Um, Annabella was being tested for autism, and so I was I was my mind was far more on my little girl and and what was developmentally wrong with my little girl than it was on what what's going on with the, the divestiture. Obviously that was important to me, but, um, m- my wife and my conversation was, was, you know, largely dominated by, uh, our daughter. But yeah, I just kept telling her, I, I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know. Um, I know in that, in that week, in that time that uh, I told you I I was told that I was an alternate to the time that I went to HRC, and I was told no, you you have a class date. Uh, in that week, I did a lot of looking, and I looked for different jobs. Um, I looked for different helicopter jobs, and and uh, you know tried to think about what what would it be like to get out of the army? Because at that time, I was I was very satisfied with my uh, my army career, and I did not leaving the army was not something I wanted to do. And then I had to do something that I did not want to do. But I had to call Jeff to tell him he wasn't on the list at all. In our conversation, I asked him how all of the upheaval made him feel as the senior warrant officer, the mentor to all the junior warrant officers in the troop. And this is one of the things I love most about Jeff. He's willing to reflect and talk about his imperfections. You know... Sadly, and this is the selfish thing of human nature, I guess, when you called me on, I think it was September 20th or September 23rd. I think it was my birthday on the 23rd because I came home on my daughter's birthday, the 20th. I was working out in my garage gym, and my ex-wife came out there with the, the handset, you know, the home phone. Nobody nobody has a home phone anymore, but she's like, hey, it's your platoon leader. and And you told me that that the transition panel had come out and I was not on it. And, and honestly, sadly, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like mad at myself for this now thinking about it. Like I didn't, I didn't ask you, Hey, was Brody on it or was, was Brandon on it or was Cody Corey on it? Or yeah, like, I, I was just like floored by the fact that I wasn't on it. Like I was, a second year three with two MQOERs, how am I not on it? As a matter of fact, when I got off the phone with you, I called HRC and called my branch manager and said, hey, my PL just said I'm not on this transition thing. Like, what the hell? 
and I, I spelled out my last name phonetically and then gave him my full social and was just verifying that he was looking at the right guy. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. And, and honestly, for four years until this moment, I have not thought back to like, how is this affecting my other, the warrant officers that, that rely on me that also didn't get transitions. And I know like Martin got a, a 64 transition and, and, and numerous guys went fixed wing. And, but when we came home, there were guys in the office that didn't deploy who were, who were just told to pound sand. I guess I've been so focused on how much it crushed me to be told I couldn't fly anymore. I never really thought about how much it crushed those, those men that relied on me to be their senior warrant. Now you're making me cry. Like, thanks. I asked Jeff what the hardest part was about the divestiture and its aftermath. The depression. Admitting that I had the depression. Um, watching my family fall apart because of the depression. And that's, that's not the whole reason my family fell apart, but that was a, a huge part of it, you know. Um, like, I, I spent 10 years trying to perfect something. And, and I wasn't perfect, but I had I felt like I had gotten close. And then the Army just said, we don't need you anymore. And, and you know, I mean, losing flight pay, you know, it's 650 bucks a month. It's, it's not it's not something to poke a stick at, but that that wasn't it. You know, it was telling me that I'm a three thousand hour IPSP master gunner with two top block OERs, and you don't want me to fly for you anymore. Like I'm pretty sure, like there's some Blackhawk guys that could use some of my knowledge, and uh, I resented the army for a long time for that. I, I spent a lot of time just, just feeling like, what the fuck did I do wrong? But, and, and Marin, I, I know you don't want this in your podcast, but, but it, I mean, it was a God thing, right? Like, like I had reached the pinnacle of my pride. Like, not only was I really good at flying a scout helicopter, but I felt like I was the king of the world. And I, I really feel like God had to bring me down a couple notches. It breaks my heart listening to Jeff talk about all of this. It breaks my heart because there isn't anything I could have done. I couldn't give him a transition. I couldn't make him feel important. I couldn't call the army and tell them how badly they jacked this one up. I couldn't fix it. Colonel Blackman, Gary, and Jeff weren't the only people talking about how the loss of talent would affect the aviation enterprise long into the future. On April 9, 2014, well before the transition board was announced and before the results came in, Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania had this to say before the House Armed Services Committee during a hearing on the fiscal year 2015 National Defense Budget. And I would also say this, with all due respect, when we lose this talent pool, which is what we're talking about, talent management, you can run a new aviator through Fort Rucker once a year. Every year, you get a whole new crop of new ones. 
but the proficiency level that you lose from a 4,000 or 5,000 hour aviator is what you don't get. Yes, you have an aviator with 190 or 250 hours, but when you're in combat, that will be gone and you cannot get that quickly. You cannot get that quickly. It takes time and experience and that is what we are throwing away. There's no operational depth in this plan. Doing some research and reading statements like those made by Representative Perry gave me a little bit of peace of mind about the whole endeavor. At least there were some people in some places advocating for us the best they could. Brody had different emotions about his future. He had an airframe, had flown nearly four years, but now... He had to learn a new one. In that little over four years, I'd had 18 months of deployments. And, you know, I was already well over a thousand hours in the aircraft, you know. So in four years, I got a lot of flight time. Um, you know, I was almost up to 1,500 hours um, in those four years. And so I'm almost 12 years into my career. You know, and by that point, because of the fact that I came in late and then I had those four and a half years out, by that point in 15, I am 41 years old. So now I'm a 41 year old man who's got, you know, 12 plus years and whatever in the Army, been flying this aircraft for four years, you know, 1500 hours, and I'm starting all over again. And so some people would hear that and be like, well, yeah, you still got eight years left, though. And it's just like, you don't understand. It's one of those things where, 12 years in the army feels like a century, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're so comfortable and you've gotten fairly decent at, at what you do. And you're really understanding everything about what you do in the army. And it's not like you're comfortable to the, the point of complacency, but you're just like, I'm comfortable enough to now I can really make strides. You know, I can really focus on these really important things instead of trying to just you know, figure all this stuff out, you know. Not only was Brody starting over, but he was moving into a new airframe that was last on his list. This wasn't an unusual result. You know, I was getting back to uh, the wish list and how that went down. If you looked at the pattern, I don't know if you did or if anyone else paid enough attention to it to figure it out, but Apache was my third choice. And I was just like, you know, I, I'm not I'm not Chuck Yeager here, but I think I've had a strong enough career and been a you know PC and AMC for long enough and everything else that I would have gotten one of my first two choices because my first choice was Chinook, second was Blackhawk, and third was the Apache, and I got the Apache. And so then I started talking to people. I was like, "What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get?" And if you saw the pattern, the senior W2s, and this makes sense when you think about it. I just don't know why they asked us for a wish list. They should have just said, "This is the way we're doing business." The senior W-2s who got a transition, a transition to the Apache. The younger junior W-2s transitioned to the Chinook and nobody transitioned to the Blackhawk because it was so over strength at the time anyway. So the younger guys got the Chinook, older guys got the Apache. Reason being is, is because they had a bunch of newer junior W-2s already in the Apache world. And so they had very few junior Chinook pilots. So they were like, we need to plug those holes. So if you were a senior W3 
almost to the number, you were going to the Apache. And if you were a junior or W2, sorry, if you were a junior W2, almost without fail, you're going over to the Chinook. So now I'm sitting here and I'm just like, okay, so now I'm going to do the Apache. Okay, great, wonderful, fine, whatever. I asked Brody how he would have done things differently with the transition. <clears throat> I think the one thing that, that could have been done differently um, is that once they said, hey, this is happening, rather than saying, hey, give me your wish list, I think that I wish that they would have said, hey, this is the situation with each aircraft and its community. And these are some other options that you might have if you decide that you don't want to fly anymore. Or um, based off of where you're at in your career and where you are within your, you know, getting your next look and that kind of stuff, this is sort of where we see you falling in. And give people a better understanding of what was probably going to happen. You know what I mean? Because it's hard to make a decision uh, moving forward with your career. And that's the key is it's your career uh, without all the information. So I think that the lack of information uh, overall, not necessarily the lack of information about why they were doing it, but the lack of information of what was ahead, uh, that was lacking in a big way. And so you're sort of just making decisions kind of like, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I want to keep flying because I don't know what else I'd do. I don't even know what else is out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy right now. I'm in the middle of a deployment, so I really don't have time to start exploring, you know, all these other options and everything. And, and so I just wish they would have given us more information like that. So that was frustrating. But I think, like I say, the biggest frustration about it, and as time goes by, it's just more and more um, – of a kick in the gut is just knowing you'll never fly that again. You know, I mean, it was just such an awesome job. I mean, such an awesome job to be a Kiowa pilot in the United States Army. And uh, so all that was kind of sinking in. It, it was, it was almost kind of like, I don't even have time to, you know, for lack of a better word, mourn the loss of this aircraft. I almost don't have time to do that because now I've got to focus on what's ahead and, and, totally relearning from scratch this new aircraft. I second Brody's assessment of the situation. If there had been any more information about what the probable course of action would be, I might have stuck around in aviation a little bit longer. But any time I called HRC to ask, the answer was, make it to the career course and we'll see what happens, which just wasn't a plan at all. There were some unintended consequences with how the Army managed this transition. One was a mass exodus. For people who didn't owe any time back to the Army, who weren't sure about their future, who had other ideas on what they wanted their next few years to look like, they left. I mean, so there was a primary list that was supposed to go, what? Oh my God, 2015, it was supposed to start and was supposed to be done in 2016 or 17. And then 17 and 19 was the alternate list, you know, and that was supposed to fill all the shoes. And they had actually exhausted the alternate list by 2016. I mean, they'd already went through it and now they were looking for pilots. And I'm like, well, you ran everybody off. Not everyone, in fact, ran off. But a lot of people did. I ran off to the Civil Affairs Qualification Course. Other officers ran off to grad school. Some warrant officers got out to fly commercially. 
Some left Army aviation for Army something else. Whether it was with the help of branch managers at HRC or despite them, everyone ended up walking away from the Kiowa and into something else. But before all of that could happen, there was a long to-do list that needed to get done in just a few short months. Not only were we worried about getting our guys on orders to their next assignments, we were also worried about shutting down our unit and flying the aircraft to Arizona where they would be shrink-wrapped and parked in the desert. We were also trying to say goodbye. There was an inactivation brigade ball. We had one last hail and farewell, but this was all farewells. And we marched in a color-casing ceremony where our guidons were carried across the parade field one last time. If we weren't learning how to adapt and overcome, at a minimum, we were moving on. Next week, we will release the final episode in our Death of the Kiowa series. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a spare moment and would like to rate and review, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. At the end of the series, we will host a special question and answer episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask myself or any of our cowboys, please reach out to us at membersofsocietypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at membersofsocietypodcast. Until next week, Death Rides.